we're kind of in an interesting time in this country. Uh, you would have to have really, you'd have to have your head in the sand if you didn't see that there's change all around us. Uh, one of those things that we see quite regularly is uh, the, the threat or what comes under the spotlight, even in places like court systems, and what has become more fragile than maybe what it was uh, 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, religious liberty is one of those things. And uh, religious liberty that is, is once held quite strongly is now quite fragile uh, in America. If you're in other countries, many other countries in the world wouldn't even know what we're talking about when we say, uh, talk about a, a legislated religious liberty. Um, but it's regularly challenged in the court system, the, the, the First Amendment that we have in this country. And we do take notice, Christians take notice in varying ways and to varying degrees, but we all do take notice. And one of the reasons that we take notice is because with the absence of a legislated religious liberty, uh, please understand what I'm saying, legislated, I believe we all have freedom in Christ, regardless of whether the government gets it, gives it to us or not. But regardless of legislated religious liberty, in, in, in that there, in religious liberty, if it, if it comes under attack, sorry, if, it, if it's under threat and if it, if it goes, we know that the presence of persecution could increase or, uh, or, or come in a particular way, even through the state. And, and so as we face kind of this changing culture and some of these things that we see that are a little bit under threat, often, you know, what we, what we want to do is we want to get examples. We want to ask somebody for advice. How do, we, how do we respond to this? How do we deal with this? How do we live in, in accordance? If this were to happen, imagine if the, if, if the, if the First Amendment was, was kind of ripped out of the Bill of Rights, right? Uh, how would we then live according to um, maybe the persecution that might come? Well, to find an example of somebody living in that from this country... We have to go beyond 250 years ago before there was a Bill of Rights. Um, in fact, I would, I would love to, to go back to uh, nearly 400 years ago and talk to a man by the name of Obadiah Holmes. Obadiah Holmes was a Baptist pastor in the mid to late 17th century. And uh, prior to becoming a pastor, Holmes went with his then pastor, John Clark, to visit a sick man and hold a service in this sick man's home in Massachusetts uh, because he couldn't leave his home, and so they went to him. They had a bit of a service for him. There were some visitors that came, not necessarily for very good reasons, mainly because Baptists at that time were not the flavour of the month, and unless you were sanctioned by the Church of England, you were not allowed to have any kind of religious gathering in your home. The same thing was happening in England at the same time, and that's why John Bunyan came under persecution. They were found guilty these men in America, I'm talking about something on our soil, and they were found guilty and they were fined and put in prison. Uh, Obadiah Holmes refused to allow the church to pay his fines on the ground that if they were to pay it, that would be an admission of guilt, and he didn't want that. So what they did instead is they took him out of jail and they gave him 30 lashes with a leather whip with three big notches in it and they ripped his skin apart and it was so bad that apparently he wasn't able to sleep on anything other than his elbows and knees for six weeks. Obadiah Holmes never 
gave up on his biblical and Baptist convictions, actually, to live for Christ and to preach the truth of Scripture. And then, uh, even after going through that, he pastored a church, a Baptist church in Newport for 30 years, 30 years of faithfulness to preaching the Word of God. That happened in America. That's a guy I'd love to travel back in time and ask a few questions to. Obadiah, tell me. How do you live through that? How do you endure that? How do you face that type of persecution, not give in and be faithful in the gospel then for another 30 years? But I want to say to you, even if you can't go back and talk to Obadiah Holmes, even if you can't go back and talk to John Bunyan, we do, you and I do have an amazing example and we can get exactly the advice that we need. We can get the example that we need. We can learn from it. We get it actually from a seasoned missionary who endured horrific trials for the sake of the gospel. But what we have, what we have is not just accounting of his experience that we can learn from, but something that is the inspired word of God. It's amazing. We have absolute truth about this that gives us uh, truth in the example and within the example truth that we can live by and today we put ourselves in the shoes of Timothy yet again in this second letter and we're recounting this experience but uh, this experience from Paul to Timothy helping him to deal with the hardship of dealing with false teachers dealing with opposition in the world around him and around the church in Ephesus okay so we've had a message like this before Actually, we've had a couple like this in First and Second Timothy because that's what Paul is doing. And, and so you might think there's a bit of repetition here and this is just another preparation message for maybe what's coming to us. And I want to say to you this morning that even though we've given these messages, a couple of these messages, as preparation messages for maybe an increase in persecution or something like that that might happen to us because we look at us, ourselves in America and we think, we're, you know, look at me, I'm preaching, there's nobody coming in to arrest us, there's no problems here, is there, right now? And so we might kind of see these as preparation messages for what could possibly happen in this nation and is that the case you know are we just getting something out of this because of preparation for uh, religious liberty being fragile or for the moral climate of our culture in constant change and i want to put to you this morning actually that the resounding answer for that is no no these messages are important for us not in respect of what's coming but in respect of the way and the and the world that we live in right now right now i want to put that to you i believe paul is putting that case to you this morning um paul i think would look at us and and make that case whether we're truly we might want to look at whether we're truly living for christ he might say if if you're not under some sort of opposition if you don't ever have any opposition for your life are you really living for jesus regardless of whether where whether we've got legislated religious liberty or not and so paul is saying this christ-like contrast which is what we must have christ-like contrast brings enemies but godly examples help us to endure opposition 
That's where we're going this morning. Christ-like contrast that we must be in this world, it does bring enemies. Regardless of where we are. But godly examples help us to endure opposition. Now let's think about a little bit about where we've gone actually in the text here in Timothy the past few weeks. Timothy, he has a couple of guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, in his face at, at Ephesus in the in the church, in and around the church. They're spreading false teaching, among others. Uh, they're hurting the faith of this church. And so Paul is really helping Timothy as a young pastor, maybe sometimes a little bit timid, to deal with this. And Paul is telling him how and even what to understand and say. So last week we were given a powerful reminder, actually, when Joe was preaching to us that false teaching is real. False teaching is evident. There is opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. There has always been opposition to the true and only gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it takes advantage of vulnerable people. And Paul said last week, some of those vulnerable people are people that are susceptible to giving themselves over to fleshly desires and worldly thinking anyway. And they are susceptible to to that teaching just making it much worse. And so it can give the appearance even of godliness, but without God's power, without the power of repentance, without the power of transformation that comes to us through the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, there's this really big situation that Paul is saying, this is, this is what it's like in the world. Now listen to Paul's words to Timothy, following that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 to 13, our text for this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 to 13, addressing Timothy, Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. That's amazing, isn't it? And he goes on to say this, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What we have in that text this morning is an example of Paul but then the reality of opposition for us all. An example of Paul and the reality of opposition for us all. There are two important factors that we need to look at very carefully this morning. So there are two points that we have this morning. Firstly being, we all need examples to help us endure in Christ-like contrast. We're called to live in contrast to the world. Are we all there? We're called to actually live in contrast to the world. People are supposed to live around us and, and with us and say there's something different about them. In the way, what they think, what they teach, the way they, the way they live. Look carefully at how Paul now follows on from talking about false teachers in the first words of verse 10. It's an emphatic statement he's making. And, and it's a statement of comparison. He says, you, however. That's, that's like saying, however, but, but you. Right? Not like this that you've just heard. You, Timothy, but you, however, you, however. What he's really saying to Timothy, because we, we, we heard this big list last week, we're going to hear it again in a minute, but we heard this big list of, of what the world is like, and, and Paul has just said, you, however, but you, Timothy, whatever I just talked about, it's not you. 
Whatever I just said, what, it, it might be what is confronting you at the moment. It might be what is opposing you at the moment. But Timothy, it's not you. That's not who you are. And we can't skip past this. This is actually really important for us. Even those two little words are really important for us. If Paul were alive today, we would want him to be able to walk into our church, to to live with us, to see what we teach, to live around us, and he would say, you know what, but you, you, however, Grace and Truth Church Cincinnati, you, you are not like that. That's not who you are. And that's not the Pharisees saying, I'm glad that I'm not like that man, right? This is just pointing out there must be contrast in those who love Christ and live for Christ. And so you, however, there are people out there that even make themselves appear godly, religious overtones, traditions, and whatever else they have, but they deny the real regenerating power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only way to be saved through repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, no other way. They might have the appearance of godliness, but that's not you. You've understood what it is to be a Christ-like contrast. You have an understanding, and he's talking to Timothy, you have an understanding, you have a training, really, that you have seen an example that helps you to, to get through and endure the opposition in front of you. You, however, have followed. See that? Followed. And he talks about his teaching, and he talks about his example of his, his life. But Timothy's followed that. Now, often when we just hear, there's one other thing that I want to do, because before we really look at this, is just understand that when Paul has used in the original language, the language that is translated in our Bibles as followed, sometimes when we see follow, we can just see a little kid following his parents, right? They're just following behind. Sometimes we say, I follow somebody on social media or a, a blogger or something, which means we just, you know, Keep up to date with what somebody is saying. That's not the word that Paul is using. When he's saying followed here, it's like studied. It's investigated. You have really um, immersed yourself into understanding what you have seen and understood and heard before you. It's an investigation. Timothy didn't just watch Paul. And he had a lot of time to watch Paul. He went a lot of places with Paul. But he learned from Paul and he studied Paul. Now, that's exactly why Paul once sent Timothy on kind of a short-term mission trip. Actually, he sent him on a couple, but uh, he once sent Timothy to Corinth because he knew that Timothy's understanding of the teaching and the ministry of the gospel that he learned as he lived with Paul was strong and he could send him to Corinth to help Corinth. Listen to uh, what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And remember that Corinth was a church that was in all sorts of trouble. And Paul sent Timothy there and he, and he said in his letter given to them, I urge you then be imitators of me. And Paul is talking about not just me, but him as he is an apostle of God by the will of God, giving the message of Christ. It's not about himself. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved, beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. That, that, we get that there again. Timothy has seen Paul's teaching and Paul's ways. That's what we're going to look at more intimately right now. 
Now, before we look at the example and teaching, before we go back to 2 Timothy 3 and, uh, and, and really look at this example and teaching, there's one other thing that I want us to see. It's not just an example and just teaching for knowledge and, okay, well, Paul did it, Paul did it pretty well. Uh, if you go down to verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, and, and really this is a two-part sermon, okay? This is part A this week and part B next week. But I want to show you the beginning of part B because it follows on. Paul has said in 2 Timothy 3.14, where we're going next week, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. You see that there? So Paul's not just saying, this is leading to a command. Paul's saying continue in this. And we're going to get that next week as we look particularly at Paul saying the basis of everything that you're going to do is the scriptures. And we're going to see that. What was it then that Timothy learned? Well, let's look back at verse 10 and 11 in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at what he learned. Look at what he saw. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, I want you to keep that list in mind. Do you see that list? Do you see those words that Paul is saying? All of the things that Timothy has seen in him, his teaching and conduct and aim in life. And see that list? That's an important list. I really want you to have seen that list because now I want to contrast that list. Let's look back at what we saw last week in 2 Timothy chapter 3 from verse 2. There is a contrasting list. Look at verse 2. Let me read it again to you. For people, and, and Paul is talking about the last days that he's living in, so people in his days and the days until Christ returns, we're living in those same days. So people around us will be lovers of self. We don't see that anywhere. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. What an interesting word. Slanderous without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Joe mentioned last week that if you think that is just a description of how it is in our day, you are falling short of any understanding because Paul is describing his time. This is the time for everybody until Christ returns. And Timothy has this around him in his world and around in Ephesus. Guess how much Timothy needs a good example, a list that is in contrast to this to live for Christ and the glory of God. Guess how much he needs that. And I think it's a great question for us to ask, right? Because you see these two in contrast to each other, right next to each other. Which list is having the biggest influence in your life? Which list are you immersing in in your, your peer groups most? 
which list surrounds you most? Because Paul says, avoid one, and then on the other one, he gives Timothy a command to continue in one. See the contrast? What's your influences, brothers and sisters? What are you allowing to influence you? What are you allowing yourself to be around most? Paul gives nine traits to Timothy. And, and he's giving Timothy what he knows he's already studied and understood. You've seen this. You've, you've followed this. Let's consider each of them. Okay? Because I, I think it's important that we just quickly run through them. My teaching. My teaching. Now, Paul's already described just very succinctly in chapter 2, verse 8, his gospel. And he talked about his gospel being the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the son of David. What he's really meaning by that is his gospel is the only way to be saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is the messianic king who came to save his people from their sins. Now, if you want to understand something about Paul's gospel and Paul's teaching, that's a succinct statement. But I'm going to say this to you, brothers and sisters, guess what? We have a whole account of his, a large portion of his life, particularly as a missionary and apostle in the book of Acts, and we have 13 letters. We've got 13 letters in the New Testament. You know what? If you're feeling a little bit distant from what Paul is saying because you haven't followed him around from Timothy, like Timothy did, physically, personally, I want to put to you that you are not missing anything. You, you have 13 letters, not just an experience of seeing Paul, but the inspired word of God through Paul. It's okay that we haven't personally followed him like Timothy. You can be sure that these letters, these missionary journeys, the book of Acts, give you today what Timothy witnessed 2,000 years ago. And wow, they are filled with rich, deep, wide understanding and the application of the good news of Jesus Christ. They are rich. Have you read Paul's letters? They are rich in their explanation of the glory of God, the power of God, the holiness of God. They carefully explain the, the nature of mankind. Have you ever heard Paul describing and defining sin and its consequences, its eternal consequences? You ever hear Paul so clearly point to Christ alone, no other way, only through Jesus, there's no other way, as our only hope of salvation? Paul clearly explaining, not baptism, not anything else, Jesus Christ alone. Have you ever heard Paul speak often of the power of God's grace in salvation? Fully explaining the work of atonement. Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sin, taking the full brunt of God's wrath, the reality of the cross, the emphasis the necessity of having faith in Christ through repentance of sin and faith in him for the forgiveness of sins. Paul's letters point us not to the ideas of man, not a man, not Paul himself. He's constantly saying, this is the word of Christ. This is from Christ. I am apostle, not because of something I wanted to do, but it was by the will of God. 
He talks of the application of the gospel for our lives, individually and in the church. The unity of the church, the mission of the church, he constantly shows the glory of Christ in the whole setting of the redemptive history of the world from the very beginning. Let me make a suggestion to you. If you haven't picked up the book of Romans in a while, it's probably a great place to start. Everything I just described to you is even in just that one letter. But he's got 13 letters. Inspired, not just from Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we have the very word of God teaching you. Paul's focus is also teaching on the scriptures, how important that inspiration, how important that, that word of God is. We're going to get that next week. But it's not just the teachings of Paul he talks about. He talks about his conduct. Look at that, my conduct, my way of life. And so if you read through and you understand something about Paul, you read through the book of Acts or his letters, you, you learn something about Paul's way of life. His passionate, Christ-centered mission-focused life, his commitment to truth. And in his commitment to truth, his unwavering love and sincere kindness and grace in the way he brings it. His aim in life, his purpose, his direction. Timothy had no question about what Paul's purpose and direction was. You read Paul's letters, you have no question about what Paul's direction was. He talks about it so often, his dogged determination to fulfill Christ's calling to him to take the gospel to the Gentiles and see God's glory revealed in salvation. His faith. His faith. His, and, and there, he's not just talking about the faith, which is the understanding and dogma of the gospel the teaching of the gospel he's talking about the subjective aspect of his faith his personal faith his personal faith that's lived out his personal commitment to christ that came before everything else including his own safety and comfort paul did not live according to self-protection or self-entitlement or self-love he lived not according to his own fleshly instincts he lived in the way that he told others to live you live not by what is in front of you but by trusting christ in regardless of whatever is in front of you second corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 paul said we walk by faith and not by sight we walk by faith and not by sight galatians chapter 2 verse 20 paul talks about his own life he says that life that i live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me and then his patience look at his patience his if you want to know about paul's patience you just read the letter that we're already in he talked about patiently enduring evil when he came up against opposition we patiently enduring evil why for the sake of people understanding being given the opportunity to hear the gospel and come to salvation paul wrote about patience the patience of god when he wrote romans chapter 2 talking about the patience and forbearance of god so that people might come to repentance paul's patience paul's love the very particular love that paul describes it's not the worldly fleshly self-driven desires love not the love where i have to express my own individuality as to what i feel and everybody must accept it or it's not love love it's none of that love 
which is false love. What Paul does is he demonstrates a love that he talks about in Romans chapter 5 that says, this is love, this is God's love, not that we loved him, but listen to what he says about God's love. This demonstrates God's love. He's demonstrated his love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. And then three that I'm going to put together, group together. Look at number seven, eight, and nine of these qualities that he's talking about. His endurance, his persecutions, and his sufferings. They're often grouped together in statements Paul makes. Look at how he considered these things. Romans chapter five, verse three and four, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Paul writes in a way that he, he says, hey, God does something in us through suffering and persecution and it's about him and it's not about us. When writing to the Philippians, uh, Paul said, you know, he wants to pursue Christ's righteousness to the degree that sharing in Christ's sufferings, he might become more like Jesus. Wow. Wow. Can really, honestly, when you go through and you read Paul's letters, you understand something about this, he just mentions words here, but we can, we can know what he means by them, by, by reading him. And, and here's the thing. Can you think of a better example before us? Well, yeah, I can think of one. But he's trying to emulate that example, Jesus. But a better example of just a normal human being like you and me imitating Christ is fantastic. And, and, and Paul even explains a little bit further this suffering and endurance and persecutions when he, look at verse 11, he says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which, I, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now don't forget, please don't forget that Paul here is talking to Timothy and, and Timothy he said, has followed these things. There's an indication that Timothy knows exactly what he's talking about. Well, you read about Antioch, Iconium and, and Lystra in Acts chapter 14, and from about verse 19, you read that people from Antioch and Iconium, that's where Paul had just been ministering, they came to Lystra where he currently was, they kind of got a posse there happening, and they came up against Paul and they stoned Paul, and I don't know what happened, maybe he, he, he got one right in the head and fell unconscious or whatever, but they thought he was dead, and they took him outside the city. Now, if, as you read in Acts chapter 14 onwards, Paul goes, obviously recovered to the degree that he could go to another place and, and minister, but within a few verses of saying that, it says that Paul turned right back around and went to Antioch, Iconium and Lystra to do gospel ministry. He went back for more. Why? Like Timothy has somehow understood this and, and it, it makes sense that he's understood this because if you get to Acts chapter 16 where Timothy comes into the text, Timothy was living in Lystra and it's from there that he actually went on journeys with Paul and was recommended for Paul. So was Timothy one of the onlookers? Did Timothy see what happened? And then did Timothy see him come 
right back into the city? Wow. What did it say to Timothy? And, and now, by the way, Timothy's received this letter, 2 Timothy, from Paul. And Paul's writing it from prison facing death. And, and Paul says, you know, God rescued me from that. It doesn't mean that God rescued him from the persecution because the persecution and suffering absolutely happened and it's still happening to Paul right now. But he, he rescued him from, from actually dying so that Paul would still go on and do the work of God. And he wrote this letter to Timothy now and, and basically he's saying, Timothy, you know what? I'm going to be finally rescued regardless. That's the peace and contentment of an eternal perspective that Paul always has. And Paul is telling Timothy that really there is no safer place than being in the hands of God and serving Christ. You can endure anything when you're in the hands of God serving Jesus. So brothers and sisters, what does this mean for us? How do we think about this? Hear me for a moment. We do live in a world full of opposition. Opposition to God's truth in various ways. It can be right in front of us, like as an attack, even from within, like what Paul was talking about with Timothy at Ephesus, within or from without. It can be contentious, but sometimes it can have the appearance of an angel of life or angel of light or godliness it can have the appearance but still an attack it's still opposition to god and and if we are going to be christ-like to be the contrast that we need this is a great example to look at the attributes here that paul shows hear me they're not pauline attributes do you understand what i mean by pauline they're not they're not paul's whose are they Christ's. This is Paul showing us what it's like to be Christ-like. It's Christ-like. This is a reflection of Jesus. And as we continue and we follow this, guess what happens? We become this example to others and to each other. And that's who Timothy's called to be, that Christ-like contrast for the Ephesian church. That's what the elders of this church are called to be, but not just that. That's what we are called to be for each other. I'm going to speak to the parents in the room just for a moment. I think this is great application, specifically for parents, but, but, but for everybody, right? Um, but I want to speak to mums and dads in the room, because I was just thinking about mums and dads this week, just as an example here. Mums and dads, this is a list of nine words. You see the nine words there? They're worth writing down. They're worth putting on a little card and writing them down and putting on your fridge and putting a magnet on top of them. You know, not obscuring the words, but just so that you can see it on your fridge. They're worth putting there. You, you want an example of godliness that's not just the appearance of godliness for your kids? Then might I suggest how powerful it is for your children to be able to look at that nine words, those nine words and know, like we know about Paul, how to define them in their parents? Can you imagine? We, I think, need to have less, and by the way, spiritual mums and dads and uncles and aunties, you too. We need to have less concern about the fact that this culture is becoming something more dangerous for our children and much more concern about how they can describe these words as an example in their parents and their spiritual parents. Don't you think? 
Don't you think that's a better thing to do? Because can you imagine? These, these point us to Jesus. Because we, we don't do these perfectly and we need to keep pointing to him. Most of all, how they point to Jesus. Whether you're a parent or an elder or not, we all need this example. Okay, secondly, and we'll push through this pretty fast. We've got that example of Paul and his teaching and his way of life. But every Christian needs endurance because opposition to Christ is a given. Opposition to Christ is a given. Do you see that? Given. 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 Look at verse 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, I just want to make sure we're seeing what Paul is presenting here. Let's be under no miscomprehension, okay? It's, this is an emphatic statement of fact. This is a foundational truth. This is a reality by which we can stand on. Often that sort of thing is called an axiom. A, a truth that is so foundational that it's something you stand on, that you can build everything else uh, other things on. It's an axiomatic truth, a given truth. This is just a given. Paul is, that's how Paul is expressing it. Indeed, truly, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He's not just saying persecution is a possibility for some. He's saying, hey, it's a reality for all. This is not just Paul spouting out some motivational bravado either, okay? He's not trying to tell us to go out and stir up a fight. It's not a Braveheart movie. He's not Mel Gibson with blue paint on his face. It's, Paul is simply talking here about, hear me, N-O-R-M-A-L, normal Christian life. That's just in a normal Christian life. Really? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A godly life in Christ Jesus. That's a life living to according to the call of salvation by which we have. You know how often in our church we, we, we say, you hear it, right? Salvation is not just about a ticket to heaven. We say that a lot. Salvation is not just about a ticket. It's not about a ticket to heaven. Anybody who is in Jesus Christ is called to live according to the salvation by which we have been called. That's what this is about. Let me give you some verses because I want you to see what a godly life in Christ Jesus sounds like. We, we must hear this. One that we use often, 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That we no longer live for ourselves. Why did he save us? So that we could live for him. That's the reason for our salvation. Now and for all of eternity. What about what Paul said in Romans? I'm using all from Paul here, okay, to make a point. But Romans chapter 6, verse 2. In Romans 6, 2, what we have is Paul making an argument against those who say, well, hey, if I'm saved by grace, then I can go on sinning so that grace may abound. And Paul says, by no means, how can we who died to sin, that's what salvation is, we die to sin, still live in it. 
Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let it not reign. Let it not be there. Romans chapter 8 verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Just think about what that price was. So glorify God in your body. These verses all describe this godly life in Christ Jesus. And it's in Christ Jesus, right? Because it only happens through faith in him, through the regenerating power of God in the gospel, brings us to faith in Christ Jesus. And then we live for Christ Jesus because we live by that faith in Christ Jesus. It's what Paul explains to Titus in chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's all kinds of people, whether you're Jews or Greeks. Training us, here is what salvation does, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's a life that speaks Christ. It lives out Christ-likeness, godliness in our life, and it is a stark contrast to ungodliness and the mere appearance of godliness that is in our world. Brothers and sisters, it's the light of Christ in us. What he did in us shines through us. You ever imagine having a, having a, a light, a tor, tor, no, we don't call it, what, flashlight? Um, is that what it's called? <sighs> Hopeless. Imagine having a light walking into a cave where there's a very comfortable, happy, hibernating bear and shining a light in its eyes. I'm pretty sure that bear's going to become a persecutor. No? That's why, brothers and sisters, there's only one type of Christianity. The one where we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to live for his glory alone. And the world doesn't like it. With all of its traditions and other ways and religions, and doesn't like it. And there are types of people that call themselves, that use the name Christian or Christianity, but there's no need for them to be persecuted for Christ. I mean, progressive Christianity, liberal Christianity, 
does not know the persecution for the sake of Christ because progressive Christianity conforms to the morality and cultural ideas of the world. It denies the biblical definition of the seriousness of sin and the consequences of sin and is not a contrast to the desires of the world. Progressive Christianity won't be persecuted. You don't get persecuted for cheap grace. Or cultural Christianity, a Christianity that claims the biblical morality sometimes, but without repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Have you ever tried telling a moral person that their sin still deserves hell? That's a hibernating bear. I want you to listen to the words of theologian Robert Yarbrough talking about the normal Christian life. He said this, he said, it is unlikely that there is any setting in the world today where such discipleship commitment will not result in social disapproval, perhaps family friction, some of you know that, and quite possibly painful complications involving matters like relationships, career opportunities, professional prospects, financial fortunes, and increasingly criminal prosecution. And I'm also going to add problems with children's education. And when it hits in our homes, we go to the fridge and we look at the nine words behind the magnet and we ask ourselves, how will each of these words be defined in me? That's, it's, Paul has given us a beautiful example. And we must be that beautiful example regardless, listen, regardless of legislated religious liberty. Now, every Christian is going to experience opposition now, it's going to vary by degree, right? We're not always going to be stoned like Paul. Might, it, it might be something different, but listen, when you proclaim the reality of the holiness of God, when you proclaim the sinfulness of sin and the only way of salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose for us, when you live out the application of the gospel, transformation in your life before others that don't care about it, there will be opposition of some sort at some stage and if you go through life without any it might be worth asking yourself why so i want to remind you of something else that paul said he said before just in chapter two that we gently patiently and without quarreling proclaim the truth of christ we go to people with gentleness with patiently enduring evil regardless of the response that we get because we can trust God to work according to his own sovereign will and God may perhaps grant repentance leading to a knowledge of truth and they, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Lastly, Paul says that this persecution will happen to the church while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now I'm not going to talk about that. Why? Because that's just a description you all know is the world. That's just the world we live in. So do you realize what is at stake here? It's the glory of Christ in your life. It's living for Jesus. We don't live for this world. We live for Christ. And we need each other to help us keep on track. Paul might have been stoned. Obadiah Holmes was whipped. We might be rejected or ridiculed or even become jobless. I don't know. But Christ-like contrast brings enemies. 
but godly examples help us right now in this place, in this country in which we are living right now to endure opposition. Let's pray. Thank you for this word, Jesus. Thank you for this wonderful example from Paul. Thank you for what we are called to be in you. Lord, let us not be complacent, but let us endure with what is most important, our Christ-like reflection of you in this world. May your name, God, be glorified and exalted across this world as the waters cover the sea, we pray this morning. Amen.